you may be seated. I think most of you know our guest speaker this morning, but I'll just say a word. Pastor Tim Lewis, New England Shores Baptist Church. Uh, he is the son-in-law of the Emersons, and uh, I, he's become a good friend of mine. And uh, we appreciate him and his family, and we were privileged to spend some time with him and their dear church family uh, last fall back east and see quite the history. A lot of these places that I heard about when I was a kid living in Alaska may as well have been on the moon, you know, because it was so far away. But I appreciate this brother's fellowship. I appreciate his discernment. I appreciate the stand that he's taking and an increasingly difficult environment. And they are a missionary family, technically, that we support as a family, and it's our joy to do so. But uh, every, is it every summer you end up out here? Is it every other summer? It is every summer. So you come, brother, and uh, preach the word to us. Well, good morning. I've got to say that one thing that's very peculiar and special about New Hampshire is that our lobster is cheaper than beef. And we have seen it in some summers get close to $3 a pound for lobster. And probably one of the greatest sights I've ever seen is a pastor from Montana consuming six lobsters in one setting. And I think, And ice cream. And that's all. And that's all. <laughs> it's a joy to be with you here this morning on Father's Day. And I want to wish my father-in-law, Dan, a very happy Father's Day. My other father is home with the Lord. And so I celebrate it with this side of the family, and I'm happy to do so. I invite you to take your Bibles and go to Genesis 30 this morning. Our scripture reading was in chapter 37, and we will get there. Genesis chapter 30. I'm only going to read verses 22 through 24. And they'll ask the Lord's blessing on this message. Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. And God remembered Rachel, and God hearkened to her, and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son, and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. And said, the Lord shall add to me another son. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we are grateful to come together this morning to worship you. And Father, we want to do so with hearts that are rightly tuned and ready to receive a message from the Holy Spirit as he speaks through Scripture alone. Father, on this special day that we dedicate towards fathers, We don't want to worship them in any way, but rather, we give you glory for the men that you've put in our lives. Lord, it's not a stretch to know that there may be some families represented here in this room where there aren't godly fathers. We pray for those families this day that Christ would make himself known into the hearts of men who need to be saved. But Father, for those who are here carrying the torch of the family, we ask that you would challenge them in an incredible way to be men of integrity. Father, I agree with John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease and Christ must increase. Hide this foolish preacher behind the cross of Christ that Christ alone might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, it's amazing to see how many different protein bars are now on the market. 
One of the recent trends that I've seen in protein bars is actually making things out of crickets and bugs. I find that to be rather disgusting. If you happen to like that sort of thing, Pastor Chausset will be available for counseling after the service and try to correct that. That's just wrong. Back in the early 2000s, a company by the name of Logia decided to put out an energy bar with the claim that it was based upon the Bible. The website, which is now shut down, said this, quote, The Bible bar is a highly nutritious food bar based on the recipe from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 8, where God describes the good food in the promised land, which consists of wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And guess what you need to do in order to become a spiritual, biblical consumer? Consume the Bible bar. Can God really bless your nutrition if you eat the Deuteronomy 8.28 Bible bar? I think that's probably a crock, don't you? Most likely why the website is now shut down and you won't find that company offering such a thing. We as believers today look at marketing like that and say, you know, it's kind of silly. But do you understand this? That some modern Christians have actually bought into that stuff, hook, line, and sinker. You see, we have convinced ourselves that if I just attend church on Sunday, and maybe Wednesday if I happen to make it, that makes me a very decent Christian. And you know what? By Montana definition, by New Hampshire definition, you might be right. Very different with the populations around us, isn't it? But you understand that this idea of Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not about your casual worship of God when you happen to feel like it. An authentic Christian is not one who worships God on some particular day in the week. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 ends with this thought that our bodies are a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. That I thought of idea of reasonable service means acceptable worship. In fact, if you trace that thought, that same word throughout the Old Testament translation in Greek, you're going to find every single time it is used about the priestly duties around the tabernacle and temple performing worship. Now that doesn't mean the Christian is to perform worship around the temple. It means you are the temple. And everything that you do revolves around the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not opening a gospel tract and seeing the sinner's prayer printed on the back and saying an incantation that may get you into heaven as a good luck charm. That's not faith. Biblical Christianity is if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Biblical Christianity is not digging a crouton out of my daily bread and calling yourself spiritual. Today is Father's Day, isn't it? And as a challenge, I want to direct to fathers this morning, I want to challenge you to be men who are not part-time Christians, 
but rather authentic ones that worship the Lord. You can't just gobble down a Bible bar every day and think that you're godly any more that you can just simply read a verse or two to get your devotional check mark and say, okay, I've done that for the day. That's not authentic. You can't just toss prayers up to God when you happen to need Him. Being from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I was born, there's not a school too far from there called Boston College. Boston College is famous for the early 1980s when Doug Flutie, the quarterback of Boston College, with only a few seconds left on the clock, took the ball and threw it 60 yards, and it landed in the hands of a man by the name of Phelan to win the National College Championship of Football. Do you know what that term is now used to describe that type of pass? A hail Mary. Some believers think that if I just pray and throw my prayers up to God, maybe I'll catch them and answer them. That's not authentic Christianity either. My proposition for you gentlemen today is this. God is seeking men of integrity. God is seeking men of integrity. Now for those of you who are not fathers, you don't have my permission to check out and say, okay, I don't have to listen today, it's Father's Day. This is an applicable message for you because God wants you to be authentic as well. It's just that I've streamlined it for fathers on this day. I want to look at the life of Joseph. I apologize for being a bad Baptist. I had three alliterated points in my message today, but after I realized that's probably about an hour and a half of preaching, I thought I'd cut it down to just a few less. So I've only got two, but we'll go through these ideas. The title of my message this morning is Characteristics of a Godly Man. How to be a man of integrity. Number one, a man of God is faithful regardless of his origin. A man of God is faithful regardless of his origin. I introduced you this morning in our scripture reading a moment ago to a man by the name of Joseph. He's freshly born here in Genesis chapter 30. You ever consider the circumstances around the beginning of Joseph's life and how bad it actually is? Joseph is born into a family that is chock full of controversy. His father, Jacob, falls in love with his cousin, Rachel. After working for seven years to pay off a dowry, mine wasn't that long, was it? I think we were only about three and a half. Uncle Laban tricks Joseph into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. And as Jacob now confronts Laban, Another deal is struck for Rachel. And according to Genesis 29, what we have is a young man within a matter of a week, two wives who happen to be sisters. If that's not a recipe for disaster, I don't know what is. That sets the stage for jealousy, bitterness, envy, and anger. And if that's not enough, Consider these things. It isn't long before Leah is with child. Not once. Four times. She gives Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And what happens in Genesis 30 
is Rachel becomes absolutely unglued. I don't think I can blame her. She was supposed to be the first wife. She was supposed to be the one that was giving children to her husband, but her womb is shut up. And so she takes the matter into her own hands and makes things completely worse. She takes her handmaid, her slave, Bilhah, and gives her to Jacob and will now take her children to be her own. And so in Genesis 30, verses 1 through 4, Bilhah has now two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah doesn't want to be left out of the action. So she takes her servant, Zilpah, gives her to Jacob, and Zilpah has two sons. That's Gad and that is Asher. Now, unexpectedly, Leah has three more children, Issachar, Zebulun, and a daughter by the name of Dina. We've got to make sure that we in New England pronounce Dina correctly because if it's Dinah, that's where you eat after the message. Joseph is born into an absolutely confused family. Four wives, a bunch of kids. Are you confused yet? Now Jacob has ten sons and a daughter. His beloved Rachel is still barren. For years and years, her heart desire has been to have child. And finally, we come to Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. And God remembered Rachel. This is no insignificant statement. God remembers her and gives her the precious, precious Joseph. Many, many years in waiting. I am not sure a baby could have a worse entrance into the world than Joseph. I don't think it ends there. Because as some commentators have written, sin tends to get worse, not stabilize. After Joseph is born, life becomes even worse. One man, four women, under the same roof, or should I say tent, trying to all fight for affection and attention, and now add to the fact that Jacob loves one woman and one son more than the rest, and we have absolute tragedy. At a very young age, Joseph is stripped away from his grandfather's presence under the cover of darkness at night in Genesis 31. Imagine the fear of a family of 11 kids secretly being moved away from grandparents in the middle of the night. What type of fear would that have caused? Chapter 31 goes on in verses 22 through 35. When Laban wakes up, he finds that family missing. And not only the family missing, but all of his household gods have been stolen from his property. Well, Laban starts pursuing the family. And he tracks down the family in Jacob and says, You stole my gods. You stole my valuable wealth. You stole those things that I worship. And Jacob says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. Joseph's mother did it and lied to her father to cover herself up. What kind of mother steals her own father's wealth and gods, 
Can we just at least say this is not a Proverbs 31 type of woman yet? Right? So Jacob and Laban make a covenant that they are going to stay away from each other. And the wording of the covenant is that if Jacob and Laban ever happened to cross paths again, violence could occur. As the family flees, they think they're out of hot water. And now there is word that Uncle Esau and his men are coming out to greet Jacob. If you remember your biblical history, Jacob pulled a quick one and deceived Esau and stole his birthright. How is this going to go? Well, by God's grace, it actually worked out just fine. But the fear and terror was there in the family. Things get worse. Joseph's older sister, Dina, is raped by a man named Shechem. So Simeon and Levi, for revenge, trick the men of the city where she was at and eventually kill them all, Genesis 34. Rachel, Joseph's mother, dies when she gives birth to little Benjamin. Reuben, the oldest brother, commits incest with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Jacob does absolutely nothing to correct the problem. Joseph's older brothers are all wicked, self-centered men. So Jacob is a passive father who allows his kids to do whatever they want without correction. So I want you to get this picture. Not only is he born into this family, he is now surrounded as a child and growing up into his teens, being surrounded with rape, murder, incest, treachery, intrigue, idolatry, jealousy, death, and even hatred. What would our society say about a man like this, born into a family like this? He doesn't have a chance. There is no possible way that this man can grow up and make an impact positively on society. Do we know better? You know, many of you in this room can look back to your own upbringing and see problems and difficulties and heartbreaks. Some of you might have been brought up in violent homes. Some of you might have drinking problems and drugs and worldliness inside your home. Some of you may have been possibly abused in some way or another. But can I make two applications before we go on to the next chapter here this morning? Joseph breaks the mold. Joseph is going to stand up and he is the one that is going to choose to be righteous. And when we get to our next portion of scripture, we're going to find that he is 17 years old and he's standing up for what is right and what is true. Do you know what that tells me? You are not a product of your environment. You are a product of your choice to follow your God. It doesn't take a village. It takes a savior. It takes a Redeemer. It takes you committing to Jesus Christ. And here's what I'm going to say. Joseph chose not to be part of a dysfunctional family. Dads, I want to challenge you the same way. Don't be the source of a dysfunctional family, but rather be a man of integrity. Where did Joseph's dysfunctional family come from? Well, let's trace it back a few generations. What about Abraham? When he asks Sarah to lie in order to cover himself in Egypt so he is not killed, it almost ends in tragedy. The Lord intervened. 
Did they learn their lesson? No. All of a sudden, Sarah, not having a child, gives Hagar to Abraham to be a concubine, and maybe Hagar's child will be the promised one. Well, how did that work out? Are we still dealing with that problem 4,500 years later? That's what happens when man gets involved. So then we find Isaac marries Rebekah, and it's not exactly an honest type of marriage either. We find that the wife deceives her husband, and it's interesting that if you see Rebekah now in the Scriptures here, she is just gradually going to fade off into nothing. No blessings of God ever given to her again after she deceives Isaac. Do parents play favorites in the family? That's what we find throughout this life of Joseph. You know, Dad's Proverbs 22.6 is a wonderful standard. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. But let me tell you first that this is a proverb. This is not a guarantee, dads, that if you bring your family through those church doors every single Sunday, every single Wednesday when the church doors are open, and you force them to come to church, you are going to produce a family that models that every single Sunday and Wednesday. That's not what this is. Rather, it is a positive and negative term. The proverb is, walk a godly life consistently before your children. And your children can follow in your steps. It's not a guarantee your children are going to attend church because that's where you force them to be. Forcing church attendance does not reach the heart of a child. The way to reach the heart of the child is to start with mom and dad to show what is in their heart so the child can grasp the wonderful salvation that Jesus Christ has wrought in the family. But you understand, too, that train up a child in the way he should go is also a negative consequence. Live a life, Dad, of inconsistency. Teach your child that church is not a priority. Show your kids that you have a bad marriage. And guess what will happen? They can walk in your steps as well. Don't be the source, Dad, of your dysfunctional family. You make sure that your heart is right with God and you walk before your children in that way. Now you may say, well, it's kind of too late. God's grace, while you have breath, is never too late. As long as God has you alive on this earth, He has a purpose for you, and you can serve Him and be blessed by Him if you so choose. That leads me to my second application. God's grace is able to display His glory in a sin laden world. Amen? From man's perspective, Joseph cannot have a good life. From God's perspective, he doesn't look for qualified men. He creates them to serve him in his way. None of us are qualified. I think it's demonstrated in the life of Joseph in Genesis 32. Now that Jacob is on the run, he runs into someone... And he has a wrestling match with someone in the middle of the night. Who is it? I would tell you, I believe that is the Lord Savior Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And this trickster, Joseph, becomes the Prince of God 
Israel. Why does that happen? God's grace. It's not because Jacob earns it. He's a rotten man. He's a sinner. He's dysfunctional. He hasn't brought his family up in the things of the Lord. He hasn't pointed back and said, you remember grandfather Abraham who was chosen by God. No, no, he rejects all that. But God gets a hold of his heart. Joseph bases his life on this event. It's God's grace. Joseph does not let his past define his actions today. Joseph chooses to be a man of God. You know, blaming your poor behavior on, well, that's just how I was raised. That's a cop-out. It's how you choose to be and how you choose to be like God. To blame your actions on people and your past is nothing more of a smokescreen of a heart that refuses to repent from sin and be changed by the power of God. God will change you if you allow Him to. He'll take your shackles off from the past if you allow Him to. Your past should never be allowed to define who you are today. The only thing that should define you is your faithfulness to our God. God is seeking men of integrity. It doesn't matter what your background is. God wants to use you. Point number two. A man of God chooses integrity over convenience. A man of God chooses integrity over convenience. Now go back to Genesis 37 where our scripture reading was this morning. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, who is that? That's Jacob. It's Jacob. What's very interesting is, I believe this holds true, that if you want to see when Jacob is living for the Lord correctly, his covenant name will be called Israel. The moment he slips away from God's grace, he's called Jacob again. Israel is faithful. Jacob is the trickster. And so in this passage, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. That's a tough Bible verse to comprehend, isn't it? It really is. Let me start by asking you a question. What is integrity? What's interesting is I, I probably looked in five different dictionaries online. You find synonyms like truthfulness, sincerity, goodness. I don't think those are meeting the bill to define integrity. I think the biblical virtue of integrity points to a consistency between what is inside and what is outside. Belief matches behavior. Words equals ways. Attitudes meet actions. Values mold principles. Joseph was a man of integrity in that the inside was the same as the outside. And so what we find is Joseph is a man that chooses to do what is right. I want to issue a challenge to you Bible studiers. 
Show me one instance in the Bible in which Joseph is mentioned in a negative light in the sight of God. Can I just say you're going to be studying for a very long time? It's not there. That's not to say that he is sinless. No, no, he's a sinner. It's just that he has a heart for the Lord. And the Lord has chosen through the inspiration of the Spirit to only record his good behavior. Nothing we find has been deemed worthy to record negatively about him. I wonder if you were to make the pages of Scripture, what would be positivity said about you or negatively said about you? This is a man of character. Now verse 2 says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. The lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. According to the wording, it seems like this may be the first time as a 17-year-old young man that he has been entrusted to work on the same level with his brothers under the care of his father to take care of his father's possessions. We see the two concubines here listed. That means that their sons, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, are now with Joseph. So the five men are out in the fields. The way the language is laid out, it doesn't seem like Joseph is very familiar with what's going on. But something happens here at the end of verse 2. Joseph brought his father their evil report. What happened? I don't know. Something, however was so shocking to this young teenager that he had to go and he had to tell dad that his brothers were doing what was wrong. This moment in Genesis 37, I believe, is the seed that has been sown that makes his brothers hate him. Now some commentators will wonder, is Joseph being a tattletale here? I mean, it kind of looks that way, doesn't it? His brothers do wrong, and the first chance that Joseph gets, he goes and tattles them. I don't think so. And I don't think so based upon the fact that Joseph is put under responsibility. Think of it this way. You're working for an employer, and your coworkers around you start shaving the earnings for themselves and stuffing their pockets. You know about it. You're shocked it would happen. You have two choices. You be quiet or you what? You tell your employer. Which one's the right thing to do? I think many of our society would keep their mouths quiet, wouldn't they? Well, that's the wrong thing to do. Well, I was a manager at McDonald's. There was a number of occasions where we would catch people with short drawers of their cash drawer. We'd count it over and over and we'd make a note, okay, this person is short X amount of dollars. Mistakes happen. We understand that. The next shift, they're short. The next shift, they're short. The next shift, they're short. Well, guess what? We have a pattern. What's happening? Either they're really bad with money, which is probably not the case, or they're really good with money and it's in their pockets. And so as an employer, we would say, sorry, your drawers are always short. We're missing cash. You are done. That is right. That is appropriate. I think that's the relationship that we find here in chapter 37 at the beginning. 
I don't know what's going on as far as what Joseph sees, but it's so shocking to him that he believes to be a good steward of his father's flocks, he has to tell his dad. He's a man of integrity. Wouldn't it have been easier to do the same thing whatever the brothers were doing for their own benefit? Absolutely. He went against the flow. And so I find that Joseph is willing to stand up against four of his evil brothers and be different because he wanted to do what is right, though it was not popular. And now we come to that difficult verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. There is no way around it. That word loved is not favor, it's not appreciation, it's not like. It is familial love. Joseph is loved more than the rest. Did Jacob know better? Of course he does. He saw how this split his home with his mother and his father. But yet he carries it on into his own marriage. Isn't it interesting how sins of the fathers are often repeated by the sins of the sons? Do you realize, dads, that the decisions that you make not to worship and walk with God correctly can have an effect on your family for generations? Think about this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Four generations are following into the same trap with marital problems, deceptions, and lies. When is it going to break? You're the one that has to break it. You're the one that has to stand up and be a man of integrity so your inside matches your outside. Parents know better. You know what's interesting is, verse 3, Joseph is loved more than all the children because he was the son of his old age. I think it refers to the fact that Jacob was 91 years old when Joseph was born. Can you imagine having a son at 91? I mean, I'm 43 and my two wear me out. I don't know how you guys do everything with yours. Praise the Lord for that. 91 years old. This is the child that he's been waiting for from his youth. Here he is. He's arrived. His beloved Rachel has finally been able to fulfill Jacob's heart's dream to have a son. There is another possibility, however, on the Hebrew wording of this text. Now, you and I read in our, ver our King James versions a good translation. He was the son of his old age. If I were to take that Hebrew construction and translate it literally, it would come out this way. Because he was a white head on young shoulders. Because he was a white head on young shoulders. I confess, in my New Englandese, we have a lot of weird words. Weird words. You know what my favorite New England word is? It's bubbla. That's a water fountain because it bubbles. Bubbler, we just say bubbla. That's my favorite word. But I'm not one that I can go around and say... Well, that's a white head on young shoulders. But let's think biblically. When we see the hoary head inside the Scriptures, what is it a reference to? 
age and wisdom. If you were to meet my mother, you would find out that she is all gray-haired. I am the cause, right? My mother is a wise woman. It's age, it's experience. How old is Joseph in Genesis 37? He's 17 years old. So here's the concept that can be put together. He is one with much wisdom, yet he is young. This is a massive contrast to all of his brothers, is it not? And so, here this father looks upon his son and says, well, I love this one. I've been waiting for him for many, many years since my youth. God has given him to me. I love him. He's precious. But there is something different about this one. This one is wise beyond his years. This one is willing to follow after the God that I wrestled with in the desert. This one is now more godly than all the rest that I've had. This one is special and I have an affection for him. Why do I give you that interpretation? It's because of what I find at the end of verse 3. And he made him a coat of many colors. I have to admit, every time I read this verse, I see my Sunday school teacher as a child with a flannel graph, and there's little Joseph, and the bathrobe with many colors comes out, and right there. You probably have the same picture in your head. And so now here Joseph is in his nice new bathrobe, walking around in front of him. Hey guys, you like my bathrobe? That's not what's going on here in any way, shape, or form. The idea is that it is a shirt with long sleeves, but would go down all the way to the ankles. It is a special, peculiar garment, not unlike the leaders of Israel that we call the priests who would wear the white ephod. Now Joseph's coat has many colors on it, it's a special garment, meaning many colored. I doubt that it's the stripes that we've seen. It's most likely ornamented in a special way so that the hem of the garment has beautiful trinkets woven into it. Here's the question. In this grammatical historical culture in Genesis chapter 37, who would wear such a thing? It's not typically the youngest son, but rather it is the chieftain of the family. It is the chieftain of the tribe. Do you understand that when Jacob looks at Joseph and says, you are my beloved son, I've been waiting for you. You are wise, you are young, you are different than all the rest. I am making you my inheritance. You are getting the birthright. You are getting the double portion. You are the leader of the family. Now that's interesting. Does Joseph ever get a double portion of inheritance? What land of Israel and what tribe is ever named Joseph? It's not. It's his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They get the double portion into the promised land because of this right here. Joseph is Jacob's heir. The coat 
is not saying that I am loved. The court is saying to these gentlemen, fellas, I am your authority right now. How did Joseph get to that point? Number one is God's grace. He's born to the same family. Number two, it is earned to the fact that the bottom of verse two, the end of verse two, he is willing to stand up of his brothers against what is wrong. And number three, he's just willing to be endeared unto the Father. Do you understand that when these brothers now understand that the inheritance is coming through Joseph, we find out that in verse 4, his brethren saw that their father loved him more with all the brethren. They hated him. That word hate is just as bad as any word hate. It's so bad they can't even have a peaceable conversation with him. And it doesn't get any better because in verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, the hatred grows and the same word is used over and over and over. What did Joseph do in order to be hated by his brothers? Nothing. He was a man of God. He was a man of integrity. And dads, when you live a life of integrity, you understand just like Joseph, your father notices, but I make reference to the spiritual father. For in Matthew 25, verse 21, we have a principle. Those who are faithful with what? The least of things. Will be faithful with much. That's called integrity. It's you simply being faithful with what God has placed in your hands today. That is how Joseph is able to save his family. And God will use Joseph to save the bloodline so Judah can now give birth to the Messiah. Isn't it amazing how God works that all out? One final thought. Joseph listens to God's Word. I'm not going to go through and read verses 5 through 11. We already did that once in our scripture reading. But God speaks to Joseph in two dreams. The first one, Joseph and his brothers are in a field gathering grain. And as they're cutting, they're binding the sheaves together. And what happens? Joseph's brother's sheaves will bow down and they will worship Joseph. Now, if Joseph is getting the inheritance and the birthright, technically, isn't he already there? Yes. But where are their hearts? Far from God's will. God will break them of their rebellion. The second dream is one that is very tumultuous to Joseph's father. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars bow down to Joseph. This time, he just doesn't tell his brothers about his dream. He also tells his father, who immediately now rebukes Joseph in verse 10. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? We've got to take a pause just for a moment here. These dreams that Joseph is having here, they are not late night tacos. Okay? You understand that this is direct revelation from God. This is just as authoritative as this Bible we use today. Now, 
We are in the church age. We call it the dispensation of grace. Does God speak in dreams and visions and wonders today? No. We have a more sure word of prophecy. But nevertheless, in prior dispensations, God speaks to men in different ways and in different times. What Joseph is having here is not, oh, I had a dream last night. I dreamt that I was a muffler and woke up exhausted. That's not what's going on here. This is God sending his direct special revelation to Joseph saying, Joseph, this will happen. Some of you are just getting what I just said. I saw that. <laughs> Do you think that these promises in these dreams holds Joseph in the pit, in the prison, in all the way to the prince of Egypt, that he can grab God's truth? Now what I find interesting is that the brothers reject it. Joseph gets rebuked by his father, but this text ends in a wonderful way. His brother envied him in verse 11, but his father did what? Observe the saying. Jacob finally realizes this is God's will. This will happen. Eventually, everything will be fulfilled and you know the end of the story. We're not going to go through that today. But if you can imagine... A 17-year-old boy being taken, beaten and abused by brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, glorified in Potiphar's house only to go to prison, left to rot in prison for many years. Is it easy to doubt the promises of God in that state? He's human, remember? but he's a man of integrity. He takes God's word and he says, it is true on my inside and it is true on my outside. How can I sin against my God? He can't because he's a man of integrity. When you serve the Lord, you need to understand that it's not going to be easy, dads. But your inside needs to match your outside. After all, didn't Jesus say in John 15, they hate me, what are they going to do to you? They're going to hate you as well. Don't let the outside circumstances of life put pressure on you to be unjust. You be like Joseph as a man of integrity, and you stand for God even in difficult peer pressure in 2019. Let me close with this. The tallest building in the world is in Dubai. If I pronounce it correctly, it's the Burj Khalifa. It rises more than 2,700 feet. That's over a half mile tall. It has 160 floors. It is twice the size of the Empire State Building. It's the home to the world's fastest elevator that clocks over 40 miles an hour. I want to try that one. The hotel is also hosts the highest outdoor observation deck on the 125th, 124th floor and the world's highest swimming pool on the 76th floor. What's the secret of the stability to such a massive building? 
It's everything you don't see underground. Workers spent over a year digging and pouring the massive foundation that supports the building. And the foundation consists of 58,900 cubic yards of concrete weighing more than 110,000 tons. The building is safe because it rests upon the right foundation. Dads, the only way that you can be a man of integrity is to make sure you're resting on the right foundation. Number one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that He died for you, not just on the cross, but that He also rose again to pay off your sin debt so that you can have eternal life. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you can't have a sure foundation. But... If you do know Christ as Savior, do you have to understand that you need to live in a state of integrity like Joseph where the inside matches the out? What would have happened if one son out of the twelve didn't do what's right? The bloodline of the Messiah would have been gone. Now we know that that could not have happened according to God's providence and sovereign grace. But do you realize that Joseph still had to choose to be godly as he walked with the Lord? My challenge to you today is, as I started, God is seeking men of integrity. God is seeking women of integrity. God is seeking young people of integrity. Does your inside match your outside? Father, I pray that you would use this message in a wonderful way that as we challenge fathers on this Father's Day, that they would be men of integrity. But Father, let it go farther and deeper. Let all believers here in this church today be Christians of integrity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.